This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Is diversity on its way for the Hamilton Police Services Board? There is a vacancy uh, that has occurred there, and uh, it could well be an opportunity for them to address some of the concerns that have been raised in the community. Lloyd Ferguson is the chair of the Police Services Board and also, of course, the counselor for Ward 12 up in Ancaster. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Good morning, Lloyd. How are you today? Well, a little snowy, but apart from that, quite well, thank you. Good, good. Yeah, I guess we're all just learning to deal with as goes on. Listen, this has been an issue that a lot of folks have brought up on council and, of course, in the community. I, I know you were on the show a week or two ago, and you were you touched on this briefly about the the composition of the uh, the uh, police services board itself. Uh, let's talk a little bit about this. Uh, I guess the, the 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 motivation, the catalyst for this whole thing is you've had a resignation on the board. Yeah, uh, Stantec has decided to step down before the end of his term for personal reasons. Uh, he's been a great member of our board, and I'll miss him dearly. He was uh, a lawyer, and uh, he was a member of the Jewish community, too, as Madeline is, which helped with the diversi- uh, diversity issue. And uh, But he's decided to, <laughs> for his 80th birthday, he's going to step down from this. He, he stopped uh, practicing as a lawyer two years ago, and uh, when I'm 80, I suspect I'll be doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> Actually, I ran into him at the uh, Gallery of Distinction dinner uh, late last year, and he kind of hinted that he was not leaning in that direction, but at least thinking about it, too. So it's not really a surprise, although uh, this was his second term on the board, wasn't it? Yes, it was. All right, so so let's talk about opportunity here, because uh, I know a lot of folks, and uh, you've seen some of the social media posts, I'm sure, Lloyd, that have said, well, the board has to do something about this. Maybe the first point we need to make here is the board really doesn't get any say in this. No, I think I've been over this a couple times in your show now. The uh, All the appointees to the Police Services Board are made by either council or the province. So there's the mayor, uh, two members of council, which is uh, Terry Whitehead and myself, one citizen member appointed by council, which is Walt Jesnowitz, and then there's three appointed by um, uh, the province, which is Don McVecker, who is the vice chair, Madeline Levy, and, um, of course, Stan Tick, who stepped down. So that vacancy has opened up now. And I've talked to our MPP, Ted McMeekin, who provides oversight for appointments there to the cabinet. And um, they're underway now to uh, put a a new person in place. And uh, him and I have talked about the diversity issue. I think he's well aware of it, too. There seems to be some concern amongst some some members of the community that it's not. So, you know, we used to have three women on the board, but uh, two of them have since left. And, uh, you know, uh, Nancy DiGuglielmo and... um, um, oh, now I'm pulling a blank. But Irene, come Irene Station. Irene Station, yeah. And and uh, so they've left. So I, I think it would be good at least to have a woman on the board, but someone also with a, a diverse background would be helpful too. But I want to stress again that the board has no oversight of that and no part of that decision. Listen, let's talk about that for just a second, because I, as, I, as we've had the discussion, and, and there has been the greater discussion in the community about this, uh, I think we need some context here, uh, because they're looking at this current board and saying, well, there's not enough diversity, and, and, and that's you know something that needs to be discussed, I'm sure. But it's not as if this has always been this way. I mean, this is not a board that has always just been a bunch of white males. There have been females on the board. There have been, uh, you mentioned Nancy D. Gregorio, who's a, a past chair of the board, in fact. Uh, that that served on the board. It's just that this time and place it seems to be different. And uh, I guess we seem to, in some people's minds, be going in the wrong direction. When the when our society is moving in one direction, the police services board seems to be stagnant. Okay, well, let's go back to the real core uh, diversity issue. We are the second best, second uh, we're rated as the second best in the country under a diverse police force. And so, uh, you know, we check this and, and look at our new hires. And so how does our total number of sworn officers uh, compare to the, uh, the census? And uh, where um, ethnic background is, is identified. And uh, that's done across the country. And uh, we rated second best. And, and it's our frontline officers that have the, the contact with the public, not necessarily the police services board. Grant you, we, we do set policy. And, um, and, and of course, we are, I've, I've asked Ted to take a look at that if he can. We're, we're, clearly, I think he's going to put the most qualified person he can find, uh, but also look at the gender and look at the, uh, uh, the diverse background of any appointee he may be bringing on. So it's on our radar. We've got some work to do in that area, and uh, we're, we're going to get it done. You mentioned Ted McMeekin, who's, of course, the area MPP. Uh, who actually makes the call on this, Lloyd? I mean, you mentioned the city doesn't have any say in this, but you've talked to Ted about this, uh, and and Ted obviously doesn't make the choice, or does he? Does he have any say in this at all? 
Oh, I would think so. Uh, it's ultimately Cabinet's choice, but, uh, you know, Ted would have a lot of influence with Cabinet, and, uh, um, you know, I think they're very, very close to getting this across the finish line. It takes some time for them to do it because, of course, they have to do a search, and then they have to do a police check, and then they have to uh, get it on a Cabinet agenda. And uh, last time I talked to Ted, I think it's on the Cabinet agenda for late February. But who actually goes over the applications, and 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 maybe more importantly, who's who's applying? I mean, do you know? Is there is there a file of people that want to be on the police services board, or do you do you put out a, a, an ad and a notice that hey, there's an opening? Who wants to apply? I mean, some people are going to hear this conversation and say, hey, I wish I'd known this was going to happen. I would love to have applied. Well, uh, you can apply to the province. I have no idea uh, who's applied or what their backgrounds are, or whether they have a list. I know at the city. We have a, 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 a committee, a subcommittee called the Selection Committee. And most pointees to various boards and agencies, and there's a number of them at the city, are selected by the Selection Committee, or not selected. They're interviewed by the Selection Committee and then bring a recommendation to council, and council makes the final decision. And so there, there is one city appointee, and that city appointee is Walt, and uh, his position will be up for renewal in uh, after this next municipal election. So, you know, after the election in, in late November, early December, there will be a large ad in, in the media. And, of course, you'll be able to cover this, too, of what eight boards and agencies are opening up. And anyone can apply. And then the selection committee here will go through that. But I, I, I don't know what the process. I never have asked. And, quite frankly, I don't intend to ask because it's not uh, our decision who the province puts on or how they recruit. So the, your conversation with Ted McBeacon then has just been, hey, when you're doing this, this is what we'd like to see. But that's that's as far as your input goes? Well, well my biggest point of contact with him was that we got some a lot of work to do in 2018. And it's not good to have a six-member board. You need an odd number in case there's a, a potential tie. And, of course, we're going into the selection of a new CAO and a new deputy chief right now. And it'd be nice to have that filled so we have a full board to help make that decision. So that's been the thrust of my conversations with them. But I've also mentioned that, uh, you know, the diversity issue is on uh, some people's radar screen. And, of course, we've had some discussions at our board about uh, diversity and and, uh, street checks and so on. But uh, I want to repeat again, I know I did this last time I was on your show, that um, when that matter come up, uh, the province asked all the police services across the province to stand down that they wanted to lead this and come up with one piece of legislation that all police forces would uh, uh, use as their policies, and we agreed to that. Uh, they completed this legislation. It's called uh, Collection of Identifying Information for Certain Circumstances, Prohibition and Duties. So that's the name of the legislation, and we've implemented that on January the 1st, judged, uh, January the 1st, 2017, and Judge Tullock is now uh, at uh, has been requested by the province to check in with police services across the province of how it's going. So our uh, our senior command and our training group have all had an opportunity to meet with them, and so is the chair and the vice chair of Hamilton Police Services, as uh, all other police services will be doing the same. So he'll be presenting a report back of any potential changes that he may think is necessary to the province to either leave it the same or amend that legislation. All right, and what have you got in mind? I mean, obviously, if you've met, you've got a wish list, things you'd like to see happen. Well, my own personal one, and, yeah. and, and, and of course, I don't think there's a police board across the province that isn't experiencing the same thing. Uh, our street checks have gone down to virtually nothing for thousands, like in the order of 4,500, and but our, our, our shootings have gone from 7 to 40 last year. And so there were seven, I think, four years ago, and then... It has been increasing ever since, and a huge jump in 2017. And that has the uh, the citizens of our community, and I certainly hear from my constituents in Ancaster, concerned. And and so I, you know, it's hard to statistically tie it to the reduction in street checks to shootings. And uh, you know, I'm not I'm not a statistician, so I can't attempt that. But I've asked uh, Judge Tolick to look at that, and of course. You know, he's a big advocate for human rights and big as he should be and, and for upholding the Constitution. That's in our, uh, when we're sworn in, that's when the chief is sworn in. I suspect that's when a judge is sworn in to do that. And, and uh, so he can't change the Constitution as he shouldn't. But if asked him just to maybe get an expert 
maybe there's a, a university professor, uh, a statistician out there that can see if he can draw a, a connection to that. It's certainly my feeling, my personal feeling on it. Uh, we are actually having a presentation to our board next week on that whole street check issue. On the uh, uh, and, and so it might be interesting to have uh, to give some coverage to that because uh, there will be some hard questions asked at that particular meeting next Thursday and uh, an opportunity for the board members to speak out on it. Uh, let's let's talk about that because here is an opportunity where there is going to be somebody new newly appointed to this police services board. Uh, but there are a number of people in the community, and I've frankly had this conversation with you in the past, Lloyd. It's not so much the composition of the board, it's the behavior of the board and the chemistry within the board that I think is, is concerning to an awful lot of people uh, because of some of the things that have gone on, some of the things that have been said back and forth between members of the board, uh, some of the attitudes about who speaks for the board. You've had criticism from some of your fellow councillors. Have you had a discussion about that? I mean, are you, are you going to try to move forward and get the, put that stuff behind you? Well, yeah, of course we've had discussions about it, but at the end of the day, we live in a democracy, and everybody has a right to speak their mind, and there's nothing wrong with spirited conversations, and there's nothing wrong with, with, with having opinions that are different than yours, but after it's all done, it's put to a vote, in majority rules, and what I expect to do, I expect members to do, is once that decision is made, is that the whole board fall in behind it. And I see that happening, but it, absolutely, there have been conversations, and people have different views, and that's perfectly within their right. So uh, that's not as big a concern to me as uh, as others may have. And but we've had the conversations about the demeanor and how we can be more respectful to each other. So it's uh, it's not the fact that there's debate. I don't have a problem with that. It's the, it's the tone of the debate and and the language that's used. And and I get the sense sometimes from from some of the reports I've heard. That, that some members of the board don't have respect for other people's opinions. Well, I think it's the same on council. I suspect it's the no same kidding. everywhere. You know, people are going to have strong, diverse, you know, opposing views on issues. And, uh, you know, it, it, I think what is probably, um, put it on the mega face more, is that, you know, the latest dispute we had last year with two members of the committee that, uh, yeah, we sent it off to OCOPS for resolution of it. That's the Ontario Civilian Police Commission. It took too long. And I don't think there's any member of the board, in fact, I don't think there's any member of the media don't agree that the OCOPS and the Office of the Independent Police Review Director are the groups that handle disputes, handle complaints, take too long. Because it just allows things to fester and fester and fester. Quite frankly, my personal view is we'll never send another thing off to uh, OCOPS for uh, for resolution on this sort of stuff. We'll deal with it ourselves because um, we could have had that done in one meeting in February, but uh, we decided because some members of council decided to engage in it also that we sent it off to uh, to OCOPS for a resolution. And uh, but to take eight months on that was unconscionable, and and of course everybody talks it up and it gets exaggerated. So. I think that's what brought attention to this this issue, and uh, but that's all behind us now, and we're going to move forward because we got a lot of work to do in 2018. Our our three-year business plan is up in June for three days. I mentioned earlier we're recruiting a CAO and a deputy chief right now. We had interviews this week and last week. Uh, I'm hopeful we can wrap up both of those by the end of February, and and uh, we have the largest capital project in the history of the service. Where we're going to break ground on next week. That's the investigative services building, and and uh, and so that's just a few things that we're going to be dealing with. I mean, this, uh, we're going to have to come to grips with uh, safe injection sites and how we're going to place that. And open. And, uh, I mean, the drug crisis is a huge issue, not just in Hamilton but across North America. Um, when I attended a conference in November, uh, that was the number one issue in the United States police forces also was how to do with this this drug crisis. And we've got to get our head around all these shootings. So we've got a lot of work to do, and we'll have spirit to debate about that. And, uh, and, and the slate's clear now. There's no other disputes going on between members of the board. Let me ask you, I've got a minute left here, but uh, I want you to put your city council hat on for a second. Because uh, we talked about there is one position on the police services board that city council does select. Uh, if diversity is such a priority, why hasn't city council used that as, as a priority when they make their selections? And that's not... Not a, I'm not taking a shot at anybody. I mean, the, the current member uh, and the one previous, of course, were both white males. And so I, I get the sense sometimes that city council here is talking the talk but not walking the walk. Good observation. No comment on that? 
and you know, I'm not going to challenge what my uh, my uh, colleagues may or may not say. And there's there's only a couple that have said that. It's, it's, it's not widespread amongst council, but that doesn't mean we don't try to address it. And uh, and and I think you'll. I'm hopeful that you'll see that by the end of February sorted out. Lloyd Ferguson is the uh, chair of the uh, Police Services Board and, of course, the Council for Ancaster. Lloyd, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Take the money and run. Subtitle is the uh, Dr. Mark Mazza story, I guess. Uh, well, the Orange investigation is uh, completed. The OPP were called on 2012 to investigate what was going on. Orange, of course, is the air ambulance system here in the province of Ontario. And uh, there was uh, something fishy going on, uh, well, probably from day one. But here's the essence of this. This large report that the OPP have done that's taken years to finally get done, and no charges laid. Uh, There are two conclusions that are drawn here. The first one is, yes, Orange and Ontario overpaid by $4.77 million for those Italian helicopters. And a lot of that money, if not all of it, flowed back to... Dr. Mazza's controlled private company, but no charges have been laid. What is going on here? Joining us to talk about this is Alex Pearson. She is the host of On Point with Alex Pearson, which is heard, of course, every weeknight at 8 o'clock right here on 900 CHMR. Alex, how are you doing this morning? Yeah, I'm good, but you, yeah. You and I, you and I talked about here? this last night on your program, uh, and you yeah. were uh, enraged, I think, is a, probably a very apt way of, of describing it right now. Uh, the more I read about this, the more ticked off I'm getting. Sure, and, and everyone should. I mean, everyone's kind of like, well, it's region history. Oh, well, so sad. If you think about what we're talking about, we're essentially saying that a government agency that was providing or supposed to provide a vital service, because in this province we need choppers to get to those remote locations, to get people in terrible situations to, to help that. An agency set up for good was essentially run as a piggy bank. And no one's going to no one's going to pay for this. No one is going to be held to account because there's no real will to get uh, answers for this. Because oh well, can't find the evidence. It's, it's it's shameful. This there's so much here to to try to cover. You know, I yeah. mentioned Mazza. Mazza got appointed to this board. I'm not even sure mm-hmm. what the qualifications were. Basically, from from what I've read of this, Alex, they basically said, "Okay, this is your baby. Go away. Do whatever you want with it. Just don't bother us with anything." There was no oversight here. Nope. No reports. Nothing, no bookkeeping, nothing, which is one of the reasons why the OPP had so much trouble trying to get information. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. I mean, they were written a check for $700 million, and then, oh, yeah, they get another check for $300 million. And at no time did anyone in charge think to say, uh, what have you bought with this? I mean, this is a, a guy who had hired his girlfriend into the circle to run things. I mean, she had, like, zero credentials. No, she was a ski uh, instructor, Alex. That qualifies you to, to run a, a, be on a board for that, doesn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's incredible the people that, that he surrounded himself with. And, and essentially, you cannot account for the money. He got $9.5 million in a salary with bonuses and fees over six years. But the documentation could only account for $5.5 million of that, because I guess record-keeping is hard. And I think, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, um, this is our money. And, and the reason I get so incensed about it, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present this on my show because this is the third, this is the third boondoggle. You got the gas plant, which was $3 billion, because that's the number now. You got this one for a billion dollars, where we bought, uh, you know, ill-conceived choppers that uh, never really worked. And then you've got the e-health, which started at a billion, and the Auditor General has now pegged at $8 billion. So you've got $12 billion in just waste, because the province never bothered to look or it was done for political gain. That's our money. No kidding. And and on that's and on it goes. Care. And the that's word the word care. here yeah. the word yeah. that's lacking here of course is oversight. And and yeah. we, we you know what we assume and, and probably that's our it's our bad because we just assume that any government of any political stripe is going to have oversight. They're going to make sure that the money gets spent wisely and at least ask for some record keeping once in a while and they didn't seem to do that with this agency. No. Not even the basics. No one ever said, hey, can you show me anything? I mean, look, and, and it's important that people understand this because a lot of doctors and, and those in healthcare get very defensive about this. This is not about those people on the front lines who do a great job saving lives. This has nothing to do with them. This has to do with an agency that went out and bought choppers that don't fit equipment or people. 
you know, we had 12 to 13 questionable deaths because choppers couldn't get to the scene or there was a problem with getting the chopper into service. We've never had an inquest to find out, did the uh, orange choppers, you know, the whole agency, fail people and, and lead possibly to, to death? So that's never been looked into. And again, we had a guy running this thing with a snow instructor in second in command out there shopping over overseas in Italy, buying equipment that doesn't work and isn't serving the people of Ontario. This is a vital service. And so you've got to wonder, what the hell is in this for the people of Ontario? And where's the premier? Because I'm sure she's celebrating that she now doesn't have any kind of criminal charges uh, following her party into an election. But where is she? Where's the accounting? Where is she with a statement saying, here's where we are today. Here's the bookkeeping. Here's where the choppers are at. We've looked into this. We are going to be accountable. Um, because it's not just po- political stuff. I look at these dollar amounts, Bill, and I think of what we could have done with them. Subsidized housing, social housing, shelter spaces, autism services, mental health care. You could do so much with this money, whether it's breakfast programs for kids, or paying down the debt, or, or reducing wait times, or hell, getting seniors long-term care. But instead, over the years, with just these three boondoggles, we've, we've pissed away $12 billion. And that's why I get so angry, because it's just shameful. Uh, in what indifference, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And and maybe maybe the OPP didn't feel that they could lay charges. But that doesn't mean there wasn't something well, maybe unethical they done. It, maybe, maybe they didn't have the, the will. I mean, what were you doing for six Well, let, let me give you an example. What were you doing? Yeah, let me give you an example. One of the, the, the facts, and this is a fact that they have uncovered, uh, one of the members of the board, a senior vice president, her name is Maria Renzella, uh, her salary was $430,000 a year. Uh, yeah. They went and sent her off to Belgium to go and complete her MBA on our dime. Oh, yeah. On our yeah. dime. And she apparently tweeted back, she said, having a wonderful time, the waffles and the chocolates here are unbelievable. And, and the OPP discovered this, and, and there's nothing in the report because they said, well, it wasn't our mandate to actually decide or, or, or even make any evaluation on where the money is spent. They just know. They, they've got these huge dollar figures, but they didn't do any, any auditing of this. They simply said, here are the facts on this. Somebody, oh, yeah. In other words, this is, this is half a report then. Sure. Look, uh, Bev Oda lost her job over a $16 orange juice that she bought while traveling overseas to do business. That brought her down. We're talking about people who dipped into taxpayer dollars and just lived la dolce vita on our, on our backs. And there is no accountability. We've set the bar so low in this province that people can just do whatever they want with our tax dollars. And essentially, they know that they won't be held accountable because whether it's Mike Duffy or, or, or uh, gas plants or Sudbury by-elections or now this, what we're beginning to realize, and the clearer picture should be, is that there's so much gray area created in bureaucracy that you don't ever get anybody who can be held to account because there's always a loophole that they can get through. And it's a really a big up yours to the people of this uh, country and the people of this province who are continually nickel and dimed over revenue tools and fees and all this crap. And what do we get for it? Well, we're not getting uh, shorter wait times in hospitals. We certainly aren't getting... Uh, hydro that we can afford, we're certainly not getting, um, you know, a, an easier cost of living. It just, that's what makes me so angry, is that we just keep paying for it and saying, oh, well, they couldn't find anything. It's crazy. Remember those stories that we used to see uh, every year in the States where, you know, they do an audit about government spending and military spending, and, and we'd all roll our eyes when we found out they were paying like $800 for a toilet someplace and yeah. figure, isn't that disgusting? What a waste. It's happening here. Right yeah, now, right in front of us, and we're not doing anything about it. And there's one paragraph here in the report says detectives believe they had, and this is the quote, identified a potential criminal offense of misappropriation of funds involving the kickbacks, Dr. Mazza. But they didn't do anything about it. They just said, yeah, it looks like there might be something there. End of sentence, and they moved on to something else. Yeah. I absolutely. mean, what kind of an investigation was this? Well, you have to wonder, because I think it leads people to think, okay, are these guys in cahoots together? Are the OPP working with, with governments? Or are they trying to kind of like, I'll, I'll pat your back, you pat mine? Like, who is there to protect the taxpayers? Who, in the end, is going to be held to account? And really, the only way you can uh, hold someone to account will be in June. And that's why I keep saying we need to press the reset button. And I would say that for any political party, because when you start taking uh, from us and our services, because we pay enough taxes, Bill. You know this. It's not that we don't pay enough taxes. It's that we have continually seen governments time and time again 
waste our money. It just, they, it, they're not held to account, so they keep doing it. This is a 97-page report, the OPP yeah. investigation into this. Alex, 40 pages of it are blacked out, redacted. Why? I know. Nobody, nobody answers that question. Why? What are they hiding? Because, well, exactly. You're never going to know. It's none of your business, Bill. You just go away and move on with your life. We'll take care of it from here. But yeah, why is it blacked out? Well, I'll tell you, because all these people lawyered up with very expensive lawyers who are able to uh, make sure that you know nothing could be seen that would be incriminating. I mean, Dr. Mazza himself, he didn't get suspended. He's no. been practicing every single day as an emergency doctor. Uh, he was in Thunder Bay at one point, and then uh, he's still apparently up north serving. There is no consequence for anybody in this province who does anything wrong. And I don't know where the hunger is to hold people to account, because we basically set the precedent that anybody can do this, because Ontarians will just shrug their shoulders and say, okay. I mean, it's really, um, there's no will to make sure that we get value for money in this province. And so when you look at things and say, we can't afford it, we can't have good roads, we've got potholes, we've got bridges being built upside down, all this, you know, these people need to be fired right across the board. I'm just looking, the numbers here are staggering, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and some of the stuff we already knew, and, and but this kind of, you know, reminded us about it again. We talked about Maz's salary. Uh, we talked about the alleged kickbacks that uh, the OPP says, seems to say, uh, yeah, they did happen, but too bad, so sad. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, ju- I was just reminded, of course, of the interest-free loan that he got for his house, too, when he wanted to buy the house. He basically borrowed taxpayers' money to do that at 0% mm-hmm. interest. Uh, yeah. And on and on it goes like this. Uh, and I... <laughs> I, I, what I don't understand here is why, in heaven's name, the government doesn't do something about this. Uh, it, you're absolutely right. Why they, would they? Alex, they can't, they can't just let's say, well, that's done now, let's move on. This, this raises more questions than it answers. I know, but there's no—look, they've got a majority government. Um, this is an agency that is at arm's length, so they can point the finger and say, well, that, that's not us. This is a not, not, non-profit uh, agency, you know. But again, why hasn't the Minister of Health had to be held to account? Why weren't you looking at these these statements? When these people are coming to you and asking you for hundreds of millions of dollars, why aren't you saying, okay, can we see the books to what you're purchasing? Can we see, you know, what it is and make sure that the services you're providing are benefiting Ontarians? No one seems to care. And no one will be held to account because, look, you've got the NDP, um, you know, who are hanging out with Waldo. I don't even know where they are right now. They're just you know, a disappearing act. You've got the PC party, which is in complete disarray. They didn't even issue a statement on this yesterday. And then you've got the liberals. They're all in campaign mode. So no, we're not going to get any answers for this. Uh, and, and I suspect it'll all just go away. I would at least wonder, again, going back to the inquest, where, you know, if, if this agency was responsible for any of these you know, dozen or so deaths that occurred because they couldn't get the equipment into play or couldn't get to the scene because of something that w- was awry. You know, maybe that would hold uh, someone to account. But again, no one has the will, whether it be the the OPP or the political will, and certainly the people of Ontario. What are we supposed to do? Just there's no will to get to the bottom of these things, and that's why they keep happening. Well, for that very reason, you know, about the accountability. But but I was under the impression, maybe hopefully. That when the when they called the OPP in to do this investigation, that they'd answer some of these questions. Uh, right. They they know that there were kickbacks. They've already said that, but they didn't pursue that. Uh, they know that the machines were were subpar, the ones the ones that they bought from Italy, but they didn't do anything about it. They know that there was misspending of money going on, but they don't do anything about it. Who are we supposed to rely on now to make sure that there's uh, there's some accountability for what happened? And I'm not well, talking about the here and now. I'm talking about back in those days. That's millions of dollars of our money. Um, it's not millions, it's hundreds of millions. Yeah. It is a billion dollars, and that's not part of them. That comes from the Auditor General herself, who, thank God we have her, because she's the only one who waves these red flags, saying, this stinks, you need to look into it. And even when she waved the red flag the first time about the, the, the spending, no one looked into it. And, you know, it's just continued to go on and on. And again, we're talking six years. People are just kind of saying, well, it's ancient history. Well, you know what? That's a shame on us, Bill, when we've lowered the bar so much that we kind of just shrug our shoulders at this. I, I would think that, you know, if people understand what has actually been going on, which is theft of the Ontario people, you should be calling your MPP and demanding, demanding an explanation and demanding to see 
the books and the state of this agency right now. Because if they haven't turned things around and if they haven't got a clear understanding and can show the people of Ontario the accounting and saying, look, we have addressed it, then heads should roll. It just never happens. And, you know, and we get into the philosophical thing. I mean, the only comment the NDP have made about this of any note was uh, one of the critics simply saying, well, it just shows what happens with privatization. Well, that's not even well, the issue. That's 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 no, a, that's not. a non-issue. Pri- you know, privatization of of some services is fine, but there has to be oversight. It's in right. how you draw up the contract, and and when you have a government, yeah, I think you you articulated it perfectly. They simply said, "Here's the money, go away." Uh, and as long as we see those things, those orange things flying in the sky, but we we figure you're doing your job, and yeah. you you and can't do that. It's our money. You know. Yeah, no, you can't. And there have been other issues with orange. There was just a case in um, the courts in Brampton a, a couple of months ago. Because don't forget, there have been incidents of crashes and stuff because of equipment and, and concerns over equipment. Um, and again, there have been all sorts of issues with servicing where you can't get these things into the air because there's either a staff shortage or because. Um, there are issues with mechanics. And again, I don't know what's going on because there's absolutely no political will to get to the bottom of these things. So you know what? Ontarians just keep getting asked for more and more and more, and we get less and less and less. So when people say, why are you so mad? Because I'm not a piggy bank. I already work, you know, 15 hours a day. I want something in return. And at this point, Bill, I would take basic respect. Just respect these taxpayers. And so when I, you know, look at a guy like Doug Ford, at least while people may laugh at him, he will say and he will bring up the narrative of respect for taxpayers and accountability and value for money. And he's the one that will keep that narrative going because there is no value uh, for money in this province. They just don't care about it. The answer that we always get uh, is, is, well, it's better now. And maybe and it is. Okay, show us the book. Yeah. Show me the book. That's the only way they can say that is if they say, here are the books to show you what we've done. Here's how we've structured it. Here's how the financing goes. Here's what we're doing to move forward. But again, I've not heard one word from the, the premier, not one word to assure Ontarians that, you know what, uh, you know, no charges were laid, but I want Ontarians to understand this is where we're at and this is what we've done. No, we got none of that. Absolutely none of that. And I think, Bill, if it weren't for people like you, um, you know, me to a certain extent on my show, very few of us covered this issue yesterday. And that's because there's also no um, hunger or will from the media because they just cast these things off. Oh, well, it was ancient history. Like when I covered the gas plant trial, there was no media there. There were one or two other reporters there the whole time because as one reporter uh, said to me, no one cares about this. This was four or five years ago. I care about it. I do, I mean, too, and which is why we talk about dollars. it. Yeah, yeah. You wonder why we don't have certain services and, and why, you know, um, you know, Seniors can't get a bed or mental health issues aren't being solved. It's because we keep throwing the money away on scandal. I know, and and it's all about news cycles, and we've seen this happen time and time again, Alex. And and I'm sure the people say, yeah, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the leadership. I want to talk about the the personalities in the leadership. That's for another day. This is is hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayers' money. I want to know, where's the outrage from the government? Why? Why is the premier? Why is the minister not saying this? We're pissed about this that they did this to us. I'm not looking. I'm not saying let's throw the bums in jail. I'm saying <laughs> what? What are you going to do? The the answer we always get is we're never going to let this happen again until it happens again. Yeah, but we keep voting them in and rewarding them. So why would they ever feel like they have to be accountable? I don't care about personalities. I don't want a personality running my country or my province. I want someone who has an understanding of how our money works and how we can best spend it. And I want somebody to run the show who actually feels like they work for us. Because right now, Bill, the politicians are working for themselves, their own agenda, and their own activist uh, you know, policies. That is not what Ontarians deserve. We deserve somebody who is going to make sure that we are all at the greater good represented and taken care of. But again... You guys should call. Call the premier. She won't come on my show, of course, but see if they'll comment. I guarantee you they don't say anything. You know what they'll do? They'll say, well, we're reading over the documentation. We're studying it with the hope that this will die down because that's what it'll do. It'll die down. The issue will go away. And again, no one will be held to account because there's absolutely zero hunger for anyone to actually get to the bottom of this. It's disgusting. It is. Well, they're waiting for that return call, by the way. Uh, from her office. Uh, yeah, Alex, you can, Alex Pearson, of course, you can hear her every weeknight at 8 o'clock right here on On Point with Alex. Thanks so much for the time. Have a great weekend.
You as well, sir. Thank you. Glad you're covering it. Take care. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. It's been a hectic day on the markets. Uh, yesterday, of course, there, there was another big dive uh, with the Dow, and that's got some concern. There's also a, a, an ongoing concern about the Canadian markets, the TSX, which uh, they say has been continually lagging behind uh, the U.S. markets for the last little while. Joining us to talk about all of this and, of course, the Prime Minister's uh, foray down to the United States to try to win some support for NAFTA, Marvin Ryder, of course, from the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University is with us. How are you doing this morning, Marvin? Good morning. I'm glad to be here. Do you feel more intelligent than you did yesterday? I did. I do indeed. And, you know, as I circulate through this community, I can just see the intelligence oozing out of every door. Well, I guess I'm knocking on some of the wrong doors then. But I that maybe spending too much time around City Hall. But anyway, I digress. I digress. digress. Let's talk about the markets, first of all. It was another lousy day yesterday. Uh, Should we be concerned yet? Yeah, so let's just recap the week we've had. On on Monday, the market went down 1,200 points. Tuesday, it went up, and this is the American market, I should note, uh, down 1,200. Tuesday, up 550. Wednesday, down 30, 30, and then yesterday, down 1,030. So let's spin the wheel to see what it's going to do today. Um, This is all being driven by fear, Bill. And, And by the way, I should note that at this moment, the trading has been open for about an hour. The American market is up 200 points at this point. So what does all this mean? Last Friday, a jobs report in the United States uh, said, hey, we generated 200,000 jobs in the month of January. And that's up a little more than we expected. We expected 180,000. They got 200,000. Good news. But there was a little footnote in that story, just truly a little footnote that said wages compared to the year before were up almost 3%. And that was sent off a little alarm bell, because if wages are up 3%, that's going to have an impact on inflation. Suddenly, inflation might creep above 2%. That's some sort of a magic number all the governments have looked at. That might mean that we've got to clamp down, slow the growth a little bit. And how do you do that? Well, you might raise interest rates. So everyone had thought the Federal Reserve Board of the United States would raise interest rates three times in 2018. But look, if there's inflationary pressure, they might they might raise it four times, and that's an extra quarter of a percentage point. Now, that's, this is all heavily speculation, but that set off a wave of fear. Markets went down 666 points on Friday, 1,200 on Monday, and this 1,030 yesterday, all based on fear. The Federal Reserve Board yesterday actually came out and said, we're not sure we're going to change any of our plans because of any of this. It's just one monthly report. We need to see more. But because they even came out and spoke about it, that sent fear into the market, because normally the Federal Reserve doesn't respond to rumors. They were trying to help, and if anything, they made it worse. So I don't Not, know what's like going Nothing like a little on. gasoline on the fire, is Exactly, there? but it, it, they were actually trying to put out the fire, and they wound up putting gasoline on the fire. So honestly, there's no, nothing going on here fundamental. Just to compare this to 2007, there we had a major problem. We had a real problem in the mortgage market. It threatened to close some banks, make some banks fail, not just in the United States, but around the world. There was just a fundamental problem in the market, and we all should have been scared to death. Nothing like that has happened here. This is all about this magical thing called fear and, frankly, illogic, and that's what's driving decisions that are really representing billions and billions of dollars of capital that are floating back and forth between stocks, bonds, which give you a guaranteed return with very little risk, and then, of course, just sitting in cash, because then you can let the volatility pass. Let's get out of the water, let the wave go by, and then we'll get back in the water next week. All of that's been going on this week. All right, but as you've told us uh, over the years, uh, somebody's misfortune is somebody else's uh, fortune. I mean, somebody benefits from this. who's, Who's doing all right out of this? Well, really, it's the bond market. So those people who uh, say I'm a company and I need some cash, and rather than floating a stock issue, I'm going to put out a debt issue. I give you a bond, and that gives you a guaranteed return. Those bonds have actually gone up in value. People have said that seems to be a safer harbor this week. And so the bond market is up while the stock market is down. But it's all driven by fear. And that's why I'm saying to people, if you, if you invested in something last week and you were sure you liked what it was last week, let's say it was a bank or let's say it was Apple or Google and you loved it last week, nothing fundamentally has changed in those companies. You just have to close your eyes to this turbulence and let the wave pass you by. All right. What's going on with the Canadian markets? I mean, there seems to be an ongoing concern right now that the TSX is consistently lagging behind. 
So let's break that into two chunks. In this specific, in this specific little bounce that's been going on, we haven't been seeing nearly the same problems the United States have. Yesterday, our market went down 200 points. The American market went down 1,000. Uh, again, when it went down 1,200 on Monday, our market went down 250. So we're not seeing the same magic waves. And in fact, the reason why we're seeing any waves at all, because this is, remember, is American data that caused the panic, is that uh, second to... Uh, petroleum stocks on the Canadian Stock Exchange, the next biggest sector are financial stocks. And most of our Canadian financial companies, like banks and insurance companies, what have you, have some exposure to the American market. So as America was going through big turbulence, the financial part of the Toronto Stock Exchange went through a little turbulence. That's what caused the smaller change this week. But the bigger question you're raising is the general question. Since Donald Trump uh, was elected, and actually starting before Donald Trump, it's actually been going on now for almost 18 months, um, the American stock market has been hitting record after record after record after record. It went up something like 5,000 points in the last year and a half. And the Canadian stock market, yes, we did finally hit a record at a point in November, October, November. We finally broke through a record, but that had taken more than 10 years to accomplish. We haven't been seeing the kind of growth we have. There's two reasons for that. The first is, again, the Canadian stock market so tied to petroleum, half the stock's involved with petroleum. And last year, a price of a barrel of oil just didn't move. It sat at around $55 a barrel. We've had a little growth in the last three months because oil grew. At one point, it was $65 a barrel. But if you check the stock market today, it's back down to $60. So go oil, so goes the Canadian stock market. And that's why we've seen some lackluster performance. Uh, the other side of this coin, again, goes back to the financial sector, that while our banks have been performing very well, they just don't seem to get the headlines the way the, the petroleum stocks do. In other words, there are sectors on the Canadian stock market that should be doing better than they are, but they have be, remained sort of hidden gems. And, and I, I think this will write itself in the fullness of time. But for the market, for the, excuse me, for the moment, our Canadian stock market is just not happening. And I don't think it's going to for several more months, maybe until certainty around NAFTA returns. And then they say, ah, oh, Canada's dodged maybe a shockwave to its economy. Maybe that will be the time people rediscover the Canadian market. What about, uh, an essay I read last night, I think it was in the Financial Times, uh, about about the, the the Canadian economy in general, and and you've you've rightly pointed out some of the sh the concerns that we need to have here, but but they they're just saying that we are lagging behind right now in some areas, and one of them is research and development. In other words, the tech industries, uh, which uh, they say uh, is is obviously what we should be concentrating on. We've had that discussion at the local level. Uh, about how Hamilton is trying to be more diverse when it comes to this. But we are essentially in this country, I guess, uh, well, I, I think the, the term they used was a, a consumption uh, economy. In other words, we, it, as long as we're buying stuff, our economy is going to be pretty good. But because of the debt that we have here, and I'm talking about each and every one of us, mm -hmm. and it's certainly what the, gov the government debt is, is included in that, that, that if that ever slows down and we stop buying stuff, which tends to happen from time to time, that our economy is going to take a nosedive. Yeah, so maybe say it just a little differently. I don't forgive me, Bill. I don't want. Yeah, I'm to be just throwing so, a whole bunch of things at you. Right? I don't want to be quite so negative, but one of, one of our challenges is uh, if we're going to remain competitive in the world, we have to stay on that leading edge of technology. And uh, we we all remember BlackBerry and how proud we were of BlackBerry. And of course, BlackBerry has fallen on some harder times. Can you name me the next Canadian tech company? Now, sure, Bombardier has done some lovely things in aerospace, but if you're thinking truly on the computer side of it, you have a hard time thinking of a Canadian company that has really moved into that void. So there is pressure upon both the federal government and the provincial government to, to fund primary research, whether it's at the universities or colleges, to, to help some of these uh, nascent companies being born, help them grow, help them get out into the world marketplace, support them in where they're going. Um, and frankly, part of the prime minister's trip that it's going to Chicago, San Francisco, and Los Angeles is if we can't grow our own, can we attract one? And so there is a great example of the Amazon relocation. If Amazon were to locate, let's say, in the greater Toronto area, including Hamilton, anywhere in this kind of an area, think what a shot on the arm that would do for the tech sector here in Canada, because suddenly there would be all these natural spin-offs 
from the Amazon present locally, but we just don't really have enough of that going on at this moment, and that, that loses us. We don't have the Twitters, we don't have the Facebooks, we don't have the Googles of the world being born here in Canada. No, but uh, then let's talk a little bit about the Prime Minister's excellent adventure, and uh, because a lot of people are characterizing this as, as, a, uh, as a show to try to get some support for NAFTA, and I know that discussion's happening. I mean, that was the essence of his speech in Chicago the other day. But he's in. He's, you're right. He's in Southern California right now. It looks to me a lot more that he's actually trying to do exactly what you've just described. Just trying to attract some of those folks up to this country in one way, shape, or form. Obviously, there's the Amazon bid, and I got news this morning, and I'm sure you heard, but just for the sake of our listeners, that Amazon now has announced that they're going to be getting into the courier business uh, to take on uh, some of the other guys like UPS and things. And boy, wouldn't it be nice to have something like that up around here too? So this this is kind of a fishing expedition for the prime minister, isn't it? Yeah. I'm going to break it into two chunks, Bill. I, I don't want to dismiss the first part. So, again, going back for about 18 months, uh, the Canadian government and the provincial governments have been making trips into the United States to simply remind Americans how important Canada is to U.S. trade, how important this joint relationship is to U.S. trade. They have consistently met with governors, senators, people from the House of Representatives, business people, to just to remind them about how important this is. NAFTA negotiations are coming to a critical point. We've finished six rounds of negotiations. Only two more rounds are scheduled, and then a decision has to be made. Are we close enough for a deal, or where do we go from there? Uh, and, and, you know, in the heat of these negotiations, there's as much disinformation or misinformation being shared as real information being shared. So I think Trudeau, uh, partly of this mission, was to go and speak to people and make the case once again Canada's an important trading partner. I thought it was interesting in Chicago. Now, he, he went Chicago, San Francisco, and L.A. All three of those are fairly democratic areas in the United States, therefore very positive for a liberal prime minister to go visit. But when he met with the governor of Illinois, they did a little joint press conference, and the governor of Illinois repeated how important Canada was to the Illinois economy and why we want to see NAFTA go. Uh, in, in San Francisco, he's talking more to the tech sector. In L.A., he's actually going to be at the Reagan Presidential Library. Couldn't get more Republican if you tried no. the Reagan Library. But again, he's going to be making the case for trade with Canada. And I just think sometimes we take this for granted that this relationship between Canada and the United States going on now for, for more than 100 years, the longest undefended border in the world, we need, especially in the era of Donald Trump, to remind them. Now, having said that, along with these sort of public forays and public speeches and the grip and grins that become the, the showpiece of these uh, photo opportunities, there are these opportunities to do meetings. And so he went to the San Francisco area. That, that's known as the hotbed of technology. And yes, he's meeting with Mr. Bezos, and I'm sure he's making the case for Amazon coming to the Toronto area. And I'm sure he's also been asked, quite point blank, given Donald Trump's new tax scheme, which would allow Amazon to write off an investment in the United States much faster than they would normally be able to, what's Canada prepared to do to match that and, and even the playing field? We'll never know what, what to Mr. Trudeau said because it's a closed-door meeting, but I'm sure Mr. Bezos had some very pointed questions on that topic. But even just reminding them about that we have an educated workforce, that we have these wonderful universities doing state-of-the-art work, uh, we have a great workforce that you can count on, we have cultural diversity, we have artistic diversity, don't forget about us. It doesn't hurt to make those messages. You just never know when a company like a Google or, or like a Facebook might be planning something that at the right time, you remind them that maybe this is the place to do it. There's been a great deal of talk about when these relocations, and I guess it maybe started with the Amazon situation, uh, about uh, the immigration policy south of the border and that that could actually work against uh, U.S. locations. Uh, is that an attractive idea? Because I know an awful lot of the tech expertise may actually come from uh, some countries that uh, are, look, maybe the best way to put this is not looked upon very favorably by the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. uh, well, uh, certainly... We have, uh, now again, I can argue this both ways, we, we are fairly uh, good working with companies who need certain skills that are not represented in the Canadian economy to bring in some foreign workers to help them. We would always prefer to grow our own uh, knowledge base, we'd always prefer to use our own workers, but if you need a certain kind of worker and you can't get them locally, we work very well with companies to help them fill those voids. That is something that is different about Canada than the United States. And also, when those workers do arrive here, we are just a more welcoming population. We don't expect them to give up 
up their cultural heritage to suddenly match to some American melting pot. We, we let them embrace this, and we support them in what they do. And that is a positive for us. Uh, our low tax rates, and, and I know, Bill, again, everyone says, oh, the Trump tax plan, but his new low tax rates are being phased in over four years. Our tax rates at the moment are still better than the Americans, and I suspect when we see the spring budgets from both the federal government and the provincial government, steps will be taken to make sure we keep a little balance, a little better balance than what the United States has. So I think you just, again, need to remind Americans, and I, I hate to say this to you as I say this out loud, but American people can be sometimes very myopic. They, they see their own country, and they just don't realize what's going on in some of their neighbors. And Canada's a great example of this. We've all gone on vacations and had Americans ask us some rather silly questions because they just don't know. And we can't take it for granted in Canada that business people, as educated as they might be, are any better than the general population. So this is not the end of those missions, uh, Mr. Trudeau, but I think Kathleen Wynne, the various premiers, they will continue to make these forays into the United States because we have a message that we have to keep hammering home. Uh, very quickly, I got about a minute left here. The 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 pipeline thing. I I, I think I I christened it. Uh, it's it's the pipeline Pinot uh, debate that's going on yes. between Alberta and BC. Right. Uh, this is taking on international proportions because there's a lot more at stake here than just interprovincial relations. Right. So um, let's start with the first thing. You know, whoever thought you would see two NDP governments in Alberta and in British Columbia, and you would assume if they're both NDP, they'd sing from the same song sheet. But you've got a situation in Alberta. Alberta really wants this pipeline because it wants to help jumpstart the Alberta economy. The NDP, I think, in B.C. might have been inclined to agree with them, except to stay in power, they need the support of three members of the Green Party, and those three members have made their support contingent upon killing that very pipeline. So you've got conflict between them. Uh, our Prime Minister at this moment has tried to stay out of it, and I think that's the best strategy. And also, I think, ultimately, if he does get involved, it will be behind the scenes. He's going to let the two premiers take credit for this rather than coming in as a heavy hand. Now, your international comments well taken, because although this pipeline is going to go from the Edmonton area down to Vancouver, at that point it connects to a pipeline that goes to Seattle and Portland, Oregon, and those are places where uh, crude and other byproducts of the oil industry get shipped internationally around the world. So this is really about giving Alberta crude an international market. Uh, the current pipeline, the current Kinder Morgan Trans Mountain Pipeline, is full, meaning if I want to ship more, I don't have that option. The only option I have is to put it on train cars. And I don't, don't mean to keep bringing this up, but we all remember Lac-Megantic and the tragedy of the train cars there. I'd much rather see the oil flowing in pipelines than in hundreds of thousands of train cars making their way through small towns throughout British Columbia and, and for that matter, Washington and Oregon. So I think this is going to get resolved, but it's going to require some clever diplomacy. And I suspect Prime Minister Trudeau, if he has a role, will be behind the scenes letting the premiers uh, seem to have the victory there. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. As always, thanks, Marvin. Have a great weekend. My pleasure. Thank you, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.